0: Hi guys, it's so good, um, I was telling David on the way here, I was like, oh well, I'm, I'm like not as nervous as I normally am and I think there's an element of, I feel one, incredibly honored to be able to be in this space and invited to share the word of God, but also you're my family and I think that that adds a little extra nuance to preaching in a space where this is your actual community And you know everybody by name, versus standing on a stage and speaking to 300 people who you've maybe never even met before, and you don't know the dynamics um, of that space. Not that the Holy Spirit can't speak to you as a preacher uh, in a space you've never been to, but there's just something special about being in your home church, right? And so thank you for the opportunity to be here and to share with you today. Um, Over the course of the last few weeks, Pastor Scott has, you know, started us on this journey through the book the letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. And a little quiz. I used to be a teacher, so I can call out names because I know all of your names. Uh, who can tell me what an apostle is? Can you remember the definition that Pastor Scott used last week? I see Sarah smiling. Do you remember? <laughs> pioneer. An apostle, think of them as a Pioneer. When Michael was was speaking just a little bit ago, talking about um, men specifically having this yearning in their hearts to get out and adventure, to pave new paths, conquer new territory, explore, meet God in the wilderness. Not that women aren't called to that, not that we don't get life from that. Paul was a pioneer. He sought new territory. He started something new. He was a missionary. He was a leader. Right? So when we we hear about the Apostle Paul or the apostles, thinking about they are pioneers in a space that hasn't been conquered yet, they're they're learning as they go. We are pioneers in many of the spaces we walk in every day. And Paul started the church in Corinth during his uh, missionary journey. We read in Acts um, that he lived there for probably about 18 months, and then he went on with his missionary journey to plant other churches. And Scott already shared a little bit about the history of Corinth, but I think it's always really important for us, before we step step into the scriptures, to remember the historical context of the city in which we're talking about and where this letter was written and sent, right? So Corinth, it was a large, influential city in ancient Greece during Paul's time. Its estimated population was 200,000, which I did some research. That's about Townsville today to give you some context. It was an international center of trade, and its location was between two harbors. So it was really important because it connected Asia to Italy, and Greece was right in the middle. So as you can imagine, it was a center of economic growth. There was a lot of wealth. There was a lot of intermingling of faith and thoughts and different kinds of practices. It was a host city, so the Olympics are going on right now. Olympics come from ancient Greece. Well, it wasn't just the Olympics. They actually had four different games, and Corinth was one of the host cities of one of the actual other games that would trade places with the Olympics. So it was every two years instead of every four. And so because of that, there was a huge culture of athletics. It was a tourist destination. Lots of people milling about and interacting with each other. And on top of that, it had um, this massive temple to the goddess of Aphrodite, which if you remember your Greek mythology? Mythology. She's the goddess of love, lust, and beauty. And so as you can imagine, there was a huge influence with that at the helm of the culture of Corinth, and we'll probably address that in the coming weeks. It's coming up soon. I'm glad it's not the chapter I'm preaching on today. <laughs> and so people would pay homage and engage in all kinds of activities at this temple that we would consider immoral, and the Christians of the day did as well. Corinth was known as one of the most wicked cities in the ancient world. I don't know what the Aussie um, equivalent would be, but I think of Las Vegas in the States, right? Like, you just, things happen there that don't happen other places, and the laws are different, and I don't really understand why. Um, I actually have had an opportunity to be, like, go to Corinth myself, I was on a tour of ancient Greece, and um, I remember walking through and with our tour guide, and there were these pavers on the ground. Like, imagine these huge marble stones. And carved in them were, it was all in Greek, so hypothetically I could have read it, but I didn't do super great in ancient Greek cloth. <laughs> Michael's like, I understand. Um, they were directions on how to find the nearest prostitute. It was ingrained in the society. I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, this is, this is real. The things that Paul's talking about in this letter are so real and I'm standing right next to this 2,000 year old road sign directing me to this temple of Aphrodite and the things that went on there. And we get this letter because Paul hears the word that the Corinthian church is struggling, big time. They're having a hard time. And today we're going to venture into chapter four which finishes Paul's rebuke of the church's behavior as it relates to disunity. The letter we will see, you know, in coming weeks, Paul goes on to address a lot of other things, but these first four chapters um, that, with the first three being what Pastor Scott has been preaching on, this idea of the unity of the church and how it was lacking. And this fourth chapter plays off of that. So as Pastor Scott shared last week, the church had become dramatically divided amongst itself, and it had just really become really clicky, okay? These groups were arguing amongst themselves and aligning themselves not with Christ, but with the leaders that they liked the most. They argued about whose leader was better, who had more authority, who was being a Christian the right way. Does that sound familiar at all to current day? They had let the non-essentials divide them, And this disunity meant that they were not growing or maturing because they are preoccupied with being right. The people of the Church of Corinth were stuck in patterns of arrogance and pride, and it is arrogance and pride that inhibit our ability to see clearly and love authentically. As Jesus says in both Gospel accounts of Matthew and Luke, You hypocrite, first you must remove the log in your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brothers, right? We do not see clearly, especially if we're fixated on our own self-preservation. Our lenses are askewed. As soon as we think we're right, we automatically close ourselves off from any sort of humility and open ourselves up to the temptation to critique and judge other people. Now, we're human beings. Judgment is a thing that God has also given us to discern and make decisions. We do it all the time, right? It could be at morning tea, I'm gonna go over to the pie platter and be like, oh, which pie am I gonna pick? I'm gonna judge this one because it looks bigger than the one over there. (laughs) But those aren't the judgments we're talking about. We're talking about the judgments that are hurtful, and they tear down community. They don't build people up. So imagine going to the grocery store and your cart, your trolley is full and you're trying to decide which line to go into. You also need to make a decision on which line you're gonna choose and you're gonna make a judgment on, oh, that person looks kinda nice, maybe I wanna talk to them or they don't seem to be talking to the person so that's great because I don't wanna talk to anybody in my (laughs) grocery line. That seems to be going quickly. We make judgments all the time. It's just a part of who we are, how we were designed, and how we function in life. But that is different than standing in line and having a conversation with yourself about how fast that person is unpacking their trolley and that you could do it quicker. And I totally do this all the time. Oh, well, if they would have stacked their cans, then they would have fit more on the thing and then I could have my stuff starting and getting my cart unpacked, right? (laughs) Like We have these conversations with ourselves all the time. Or maybe more serious, we're at a friend's birthday party. They've had a ton to drink. This isn't the first time. And there's a pattern that you're starting to see, and you think, oh, I wonder what's going on. This doesn't seem like a healthy thing. I'm making a judgment. I'm gonna have, I'm just gonna have a conversation with them and ask how they're doing, because I notice I'm making a judgment that that behavior is not helpful to them, it's not healthy to them, it's not helpful to our community. That's very different than being at the party and being like, oh my gosh, Deb can just not hold her alcohol. She needs help. And I mean, I've never been drunk, but gosh, she needs to get it together, right? Those are two different things. (laughs) We're talking about the latter version. Does that resonate with anybody in this room? Any of those examples? Yeah. So just last night, I had my own real life example of this typical God thing, because um, I had been praying about a story to share in my sermon, and while literally I am writing it, he bestows upon me, oh, I'll use you as the example uh, for your sermon in this lesson in pride and judgment. And it was the dumbest, silliest thing And to cut the story really short, essentially I was convinced that my way of answering a question was better than somebody else's. It didn't really matter, the outcome was the same, but I was in that moment realizing, ah, my perception of myself is that I like to be efficient, I like to be helpful, and because those things are true, I think, Um, I do things this way, and A plus B equals C, and if someone else doesn't do those things, they're not helpful, and they're not efficient. And that just isn't true. It feels really true, but when you have a moment to see clearly, maybe because someone has, has the patience and the grace to call you out on it kindly, you start to realize, oh, maybe I don't have all the right answers to all the right things, all the right times, right? Pride's sneaky. And often it's way easier for us to see it in each other than it is to see in ourselves. Last week, Pastor Scott challenged us to ask God the question, what's the seed you want me to plant? And then he went on to teach out of chapter three, Paul's parable of the planter and the waterer, and that ultimately God is totally capable, but he humbles himself to a place where he invites us to join him. So we put on our gumboots, we get out in the rain and in the muck and we plant the seeds and we water it again when it's not already wet outside. We're a part of the process, watering the seeds of his kingdom. He is responsible for how those seeds grow and the result and the fruit of them. But we still need to go out to plant them and water them and take care of them in the process. So today, as we step into scripture, I promise we're getting to the Bible. Um, As we step into chapter four, I want to invite us to take that question from last week one step further and ask ourselves, what is holding me back from planting that seed? What seed, God, do you want me to plant and what inside of me is holding me back from actually planting that seed? At the end of chapter three, we read God reminding his readers who they are in Christ. All of our worship songs were about that today. How awesome. God is good, right? And that in Christ, we already have everything our factions, our popularity, our money, all of the things that divide us is keeping us from working together as a united church front instead of planting and watering seeds, we're stuck in the process of debating on who might be better at doing it instead of actually doing it. For Paul, this literally meant, and soon we're gonna read, that many judged his ministry's success and his authority from God based on his looks, his money, and his number of followers. In a city like Corinth where wealth was prevalent, some in the church were starting to attribute authority and blessing from God based on their wealth and their power and their popularity. Not unlike what we see today, right? We fall into these traps as well. We can too easily judge other churches, other preachers, other people at the birthday party, whatever, without really knowing the full story and taking a look at ourselves. So let's see what Paul has to say in chapter four and we're reading the whole thing, so get ready. (laughs) Open up to 1 Corinthians chapter four, verses one through 21. Paul says, this then is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ. So he's talking about the, the apostles, him, Apollos, Peter. He's arguing against what he has heard the Corinthians have been saying, making them celebrities and causing all this division. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little, little if I am judged by you or any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart at that time, each will receive their praise from God. So he's saying, hey, apostles are not your celebrities. They're not your dividing fork in the road of who you're gonna follow because they're cool and they sound awesome and they have this much money and I get to go on their cool boat and I like hang out with them, right? They're called to be, we're called to be servant leaders, the lowest of the low. We answer to one master, and that's God as servants. Our master is God and God alone. And God, who is omnipotent, who sees everything clearly, he is the one who rightly judges. It's not us. We cannot see ourselves or others clearly. Although healthy judgments are a part of our life and a part of building our community, sinful judgments aren't. And they hold us back from maturing in our faith. Like Scott said last week. All right, verse six. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. A.K., you are not wiser than God, and your arrogance and your pride is telling you lies, and it's pitting you against each other. Verse seven. Verse seven. For who makes you different from anyone else? He's starting to get a little sarcastic. Good old Paul. What do you have have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? A.K.A. everything's God's. so why do you think you're better than other people? That's not our reality as Christians. Verse 8. Already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we also might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as human beings. What I think is really cool about that chunk of scripture is that Paul's using imagery that would have elicited a lot of thoughts for the Corinthians because they lived in the time of the gladiators. They lived in the time of kings would parade through their city and the prisoners of war would literally be in chains at the end of their processional. Think like Jabba the Hutt where they like bring the people in and then they drop them in the grate and then they watch them die fighting animals. That is what happened. (laughs) Maybe George Lucas used ancient Greece, I'm not really sure, as an inspiration. He is essentially making the point that the the Corinthians see themselves as kings. They know it all. And the real servants, the apostles, Paul is arguing, are being put on display and chastised. Prisoners led to the local arena. So now he gets real sarcastic. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored and we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty, we are in rags, we are brutally treated, we are homeless. We work hard with our hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. To follow Christ is to become the lowest of the low. And the Corinthian church had flipped that on its head and were honoring those of the highest of high. Paul is challenging the spiritual elitists in this group. And instead of planting and watering seeds, they were sitting around in their ivory towers making comments about the people in the trenches doing the work of ministry. That doesn't happen at all today, does it? Last two paragraphs. Verse 14, I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord's willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? dad's mad. Like, (laughs) that's what I read. I would not have been the, I would have not enjoyed being the first person to read this letter and then say it to the church. We currently live in a society where everyone considers themselves an expert, right? If you can Google it, you know everything about it. (laughs) We don't like to be told what to do or how to do things, and we're really good at making quick assumptions about people we don't actually know. Spend any time in any comment stream on Facebook and you will quickly learn that people feel very free to say really mean things about each other and about ideas that they don't actually understand or they haven't taken the time to empathize with. Paul is asking us to stop, to grow up, and to become like him and to do so would mean the Corinthians would need to give up the social hierarchy they had built for themselves. No longer were apostles of Christ to be venerated as celebrities, who they then aligned themselves with and felt really cool, but to be servant leaders, committed only to the opinion of God alone, committed and dedicated to planting and watering seeds in the muck and the mess of what is the trenches of life with the people that need it. What seed is God asking you to plant? And what is holding you back from planting it? I once heard a story about a young couple who moved into this new neighborhood. And during breakfast one day, they looked out their window and there was their neighbor. And she was hanging um, clothes on the line. And the wife goes to her husband, oh, someone needs to teach that woman how to clean her laundry because it doesn't look very clean. They have breakfast, he doesn't really say anything. A Couple days later, they witness the same thing. The neighbor's going out to hang her clothes on the line. Again, the wife comments, maybe it's the soap she's using. She, someone needs to teach her that she needs to use this kind of soap because her clothes are not clean. This continues for months to a day where all of a sudden, the wife looks out the window and she turns to her husband and she goes, Oh, my gosh, their laundry is clean. Somebody must have gone over and told that woman what to do and that she was doing it incorrectly. And her husband, who hadn't really said anything any of these times, looked at her and said, I got up early and cleaned our window. (laughs) Our perspectives are not always the whole story. We all see the world and each other through our own dirty windows. Could it be that many of us, like the Corinthians in Paul's day, are in need of a bit of window washing? What would it look like if we, the church, were willing to get messy together, united around our belovedness The power that we receive from the spirit in us because we love Christ. We've dedicated our lives to him. He is our savior. He is our Lord. What if those were the things that motivated us and kept us together? How many more seeds would be planted and how many more seeds would be watered? For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Matthew 16, 25. What seed... Is God asking you to plant and what's holding you back from doing it? Let's pray together. God, soften our hearts today. Help us to see the areas of our lives where we are bolstering ourselves up with the things of this world, whether it's our prestige, our titles at work, the amount of money we make, How much volunteering we do at church versus the other people, the number of friends that we have, our political ideas, whether or not we've been vaccinated, all of the things, and there are many, that are dividing us, our church especially, from actually being your hands and feet, partnering with you to make wrong things right in our kingdom. Lord, help us to see that those things don't matter. That you've already made us clean. Lord, flush out the things, flush out the arrogance and the pride that can be so sneaky and we don't even realize is an issue, but ultimately is holding us back from seeing our situations and our brothers and our sisters clearly. But ultimately, have have those revelations bring us closer to you. And rest in the fact that we are loved. And even though we're not perfect, that we don't need to self preserve, we don't need to prove ourselves, because you've already chosen us. You've already called us. You're already for us. Help us, Lord, to remember. Help us to crawl into your arms, to confess. And to just rest in your loving presence, knowing that we're never going to have it all figured out. But that we don't have to prove ourselves to everybody else and pretend like we do. Help us to let go of those structures that's, that hold us up. And instead, let us just be held up by you. We love you, Lord. Be with our hearts today and in this week as we think about the messages of the last four weeks and what it is maybe you have for us and give us the courage to take that next step. Help us to be planters and waterers in your kingdom and help us to open ourselves up to the ways you're inviting us to do that. In your name, amen.